Drew Oyajay is a writer, organizer, and web developer. He's currently hosting a podcast himself called Half Past Capitalism and serving as both the executive director of CUTV, Canada's oldest campus-based TV station, and publisher of The Breach, an independent media outlet producing critical journalism at a time when it's urgently needed. He's written a number of articles for The Breach, and he's also the co-author with Nicholas Barry Shaw of an invaluable book called Paved with Good Intentions, Canada's Development NGOs from Idealism to Imperialism. We talk about those pieces of writing in this conversation and all of the work that he's currently doing with The Breach to produce journalism that's aimed specifically at sparking social and political transformation by moving radical ideas into the mainstream. There's no getting around it, though, he says. The state of the journalistic profession is looking bleak. He talks about how social media has meant a shifting of roles for journalists and widespread disempowerment in the sector that runs alongside the public's lack of confidence in journalism during the neoliberal period. More particularly, he says that social media and what he calls algorithmic curation is a kind of race where society is coming apart and in which a multitude of competing organizations are trying to establish the dominant pattern of thinking. What's necessary in this context is for those on the left to commit to radically deepening democracy, even as we labor under the force of mega corporations that constrain the flow of information. There are multiple demobilizing forces converging in the current moment. Jay talks about his research into the effects of NGOs, how they've tended historically, despite their good intentions, to de-radicalize movements. In fact, he claims that we're currently seeing, quote, systematic and cynical work to derail the climate movement through the professionalization of activism in NGOs. What he laments is the loss of direct accountability and the constitutive links that movements have with their members as groups become incrementally more accountable to funders over time. So a major theme here, I would say, is the problem of how particular patterns of thinking are created and then become very difficult to dislodge. We discuss the ways that geopolitical patterns of thinking have historically undermined any notion of a rules-based international order. He offers some nuanced analysis of the role of NATO in creating the conditions for the crisis in Ukraine, while necessarily dwelling with the impossible contradictions of that military conflict and the terrifying possibility that it could actually mean nuclear war, given the brazen ways that major powers are dealing with and have dealt with the prospect of nuclear annihilation in the past and present. It's clear that for Jay, we also need to unpack and come to terms with the collective trauma of settler colonialism and how it lives on in scars and patterns of thought we inherit. He emphasizes the ongoing violence of colonial oppression and how today indigenous peoples are, quote, handcuffed to an objective measure of climate collapse in ways that reinforce the ties between racism and capitalism. We talk in bluntly critical ways about how, as he puts it, capitalism is always looking over your shoulder, creating, commodifying, and exploiting our relationships in its image. For this reason, he stresses the importance of class as a site of social transformation, especially in relationship to established and emerging environmental movements, where we're starting to realize that we share a grim fate under the brutality of petro-states, as he puts it. 
Wars are spreading globally and the climate emergency is accelerating. What are we going to do? Jay makes it clear that the crises we face are going to require mass mobilization to stop them. And that part of the battle involves confronting the class privilege and extreme wealth that makes it too easy for some to just basically refuse to perceive reality as it is. The first question I was going to ask you is more or less about the state of uh, the media industry as such in Canada. Um, you know, I interviewed Nora Loretto for the podcast and in her book, Spin Doctors, like the end of that book talks about this countrywide gutting of the news media that kind of accelerated during COVID. Um, she says that with the exception of the airline industry, no other industry was probably hit as hard as journalism, um, writing that, quote, by March 2021, the industry had been battered with thousands fewer jobs remaining after year one of the pandemic than there had ever been in the modern era of Canada's mass communications industry. Um, and she, you know, she gives some numbers uh, from JSource, uh, JSource's media impact map that, um, you know, 129 media outlets across Canada experienced some kind of COVID related impact. And there was just like massive job loss, basically. And I guess like, from your perspective right now, um, working for as, as publisher at The Breach, you know, what what do you feel like the goals of The Breach are in this context? Like, I guess, who are you hoping to reach? Uh, do you have to be concerned about things like, you know, filter bubbles and algorithmic media? You know, those are constraints we kind of have to work with now. And, um, you know, just generally, do you have to think about these sorts of things in order to stay afloat? at a time of unprecedented cuts to journalism in Canada? In terms of the breach, I mean, I think our our goal is, you know, as, as our sort of tagline states, journalism for transformation. So that really the idea is to, um, to, to use journalism as a, as a tool for, um, I guess on a bunch of fronts, like getting, getting transformative ideas out into not just, you know, a, a small readership, but, a but into the sort of mainstream. Um, and there, you know, there are a few different ways to do that. You can reach people directly or you can influence the existing media. Um, and I think we try to do a little bit of both. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the overall picture of, of journalism, there's a, you know, things are bleak. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's been a decline really since the '90s. Um, like that was the the peak of <laughs> of journalism, as far as I can tell. There was that was when you had the most journalists uh, employed, and there's been sort of a a decline and a and a sort of a, a drastic shifting uh, of roles. Um, and I think it's led to sort of pretty steep disempowerment uh, in the sector overall. Um, and I think, you know, obviously a huge part of that is Facebook and, and Google um, just like taking up all the ad revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think there's some there's some big opportunities. I mean, unquestionably, it's it's a it's it's led to sort of a decline in, in the sort of confidence in institutions, I think, like the fact that you have. Uh, corporate consolidation on the one hand and and a, just a shuttering of outlets, especially local news outlets, I think have really been the hard, hardest hit as far as I can tell. Um, like small town newspapers um, have just been 
um, sort of gobbled up by corporate players at an astonishing rate or just shuttered straight up. Um, and either way, it's bad. Like you have, um, like you end up with a situation where people are, the, the, the news people are getting is, is either sort of more sort of canned, centralized um, sort of filler um, that doesn't engage with their local situation uh, or it's um, it's just like toxic social media uh, is is sort of what's what's filling the gaps, mm-hmm. um, you know. In terms of like we like, I think I, it's not my coinage, but you know, when you have news deserts, basically what you end up with is news scorpions, snakes, and cac- cactuses. You know, like you end mm-hmm. up with um, you end up sort of shredding the social fabric. Um, and so I think that that's a big part of the political landscape that we're sort of dealing with. And that's not limited to the media by any stretch. I think neoliberalism is is sort of deteriorating faith in institutions across the board. And so far, the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the ruling class, the people with the opportunity and ability to do anything about it haven't been, um, you know, doing anything like what would what the scale of the problem would require um so to come back to the breach i mean i think in that context you know there's a few different there's very basically <laughs> two ways to go you know you, socialism or barbarism basically uh mm-hmm. you you can say like you know there's you you can either uh you can either radicalize and deepen and create more democratic society across the board and that means economically that means culturally that means um, certainly at the realm of like formal political representation, like you can either deepen democracy and participation and empowerment, um, or you can, you know, not, and just kind of see what happens. And that sort of brings me to, I guess the last, like, or one of the ones that I missed in, in your series of questions there, which is, you know, the sort of the, the daily me phenomenon. Um, and I think that there's two elements to this. One is that, yeah, I think social media and, you know, algorithmic uh, curation uh, broadly, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or, um, or Google News, um, you know, those are going to show people more of what they're already doing. Uh, and so it's a race. It's sort of a race, I guess, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, an ideal in, 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 a, in a situation where society is sort of coming apart of the seams. It's a race you know, in slow motion, obviously there's still a lot of social fabric to be torn up. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, there's a race that's happening to, to see who can establish the, the sort of pattern <laughs> of thinking that is going to be reinscribed consistently. Mm-hmm. And I think, so that's one aspect of it is just the sort of autonomous sort of AI, just sort of doing its thing, like just figuring, like every, every platform is just figuring out optimizing how they can keep you on there, keep each user, each individual user on there for longer, clicking more, you know, engaging more, uh, watching more ads and so on. And then on the other hand, you have this sort of like kind of incredible top-down control, uh, which is just, it's just kind of astonishing to watch how the internet has gone from this thing where it's like, oh, it's open for everybody. It's anybody, you know, anyone can be, can be a star overnight. Anybody can, and the best ideas are going to gain momentum and, you know, going from that to like, oh no, we're just going to take all of, uh, all, all of certain people off of YouTube overnight. Mm-hmm. 
there's justifications on di- on different levels, you know. Um, Chris, you know, Chris Hedges was removed from YouTube. Like you can say, okay, great. Like uh, he shouldn't have been on. He shouldn't have been, you know, messing around with Russian television. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of counter arguments to that. You know, he was shut out of the U.S. media and so on. Right, right, right. But you know, you can have that debate back and forth. But fundamentally, it's a really bad thing that YouTube can just like just take like because they're basically the public square. I mean, they're a big chunk of the public square. Um, you're off YouTube. You're off of your your. You know, you've you just don't have access to like a pretty giant potential audience. Um, mm-hmm. And so that kind of, I guess, censorship or, or <laughs> hard curation, so we say, uh, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, is, is, is like it's a re- the trend line is just alarming, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and you couple that with the sort of um, more and more censorious sort of uh, vibe that we're, com- that we're getting from all the different, um, I don't know, liberal intelligentsia, I guess. It's, you know, for the breach specifically, like we're kind of coming into this and being like, oh, we're we're trying to build a YouTube channel. <laughs> we're trying to build a mm-hmm. Twitter following. We're trying to build on Facebook. And it's like, how can we, we have to be in that those spaces, but like, how do we also think about getting out of those as quickly as possible? Yeah. So it's this, it's this sort of back and forth. I really don't like being dependent on these mega corporations and and in many ways it's worse mm-hmm. uh, than it was before because um because because you have the illusion that that it's this marketplace of ideas but then you have this like extreme extremely swift and and very quickly changing sort of top-down control that's that's mm-hmm. being exercised and 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 we, you know we know from facebook like when occupy happened like there were Occupy groups with hundreds of thousands of people in them that just disappeared. And like, there was never really any great, that I saw anyway, any great explanation for that. It just happened. And so, and so it's one thing to have your little niche. And it's another thing when you start to challenge corporate power on a bigger scale, uh, they can just, you know, you can just disappear. Uh, And that's, that's wild. I agree, you know, and, and it sort of leads into the next thing I was going to ask you about. Um, but there's like, obviously so much there, uh, to kind of, um, parse, like the, the biggest thing I'm hearing is like, there is this, there's this like, uh, technological determinism about, you know, so-called platform capitalism or what Mackenzie work calls vectoral capitalism, right. A, A capitalism that controls the vectors of information. Like it, it really does suck that you have to, that there's just this lack of alternatives. There isn't yet. Um, you know, social media in a kind of truly decentralized, democratic, like, you know, public uh, form at all. It just doesn't exist. Um, and so within that context, you have to, like, I have to make these choices about, um, you know, how to promote the podcast or whatever, like using whatever channels I have and using whatever connections I may have. Um, you know, you just have to be kind of like a, a realist about those things as as, as much as it hurts. Um and so like this, the, the thing I was going to ask is like, you, you tend to start uh, the interviews on your podcast, Half Past Capitalism, which is great um, it, with the, I think, relatable, but subtly complex question of what your guest's most recent experience of capitalism was. Uh, so I really like Sam uh, Gindin's response 
that it's too ubiquitous to know where to begin. Yeah. Um, and like, I think it's just a useful prompt in general uh, because, because not, you know, uh, uh, not in spite of the fact that it's so ubiquitous, like it gets you to think about these things, but what was like a thing you collided with where you were like, Oh, capitalism. Like it just like really struck you uh, some kind of direct experience of, of the system that made you kind of pause and say like, what a weird and in many ways absurd way to organize society. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I the part of the reason I ask it is because I have no idea. <laughs> you know, like yeah, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. about it all the time, but it's like, what is the what is the most recent one, or what you know, like you just pick 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 anything. Yeah. Um, well, if anything comes to mind, you know, no big yeah, deal. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's just in the way that relationships sort of get 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 sort of subtly commodified. You know, like if I'm mm. if I like, I mean, even at the breach, like, I mean. And I don't. This is this is just a, a statement of of broad fact. It's not a, a reflection of any anyone, mm-hmm. uh, including myself. I don't think. But um, but just being in a, being in a situation where you go to a, a workplace and people are there to some extent because they want to be or because they you know it's it's a cool place to work or whatever. But also mm-hmm. because you know that's how they that's how they eat. You know, <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. and so we operate in that situation and so there's not really a choice like of course people should be paid for their work but at the same time like you're operating in this like commodity relationship even in a even in the context of like a nonprofit that's has some democratic you know um orientation um like you're like even if you're in a worker co-op like you're in a situation where you're probably your housing probably your food <laughs> probably your um you know, means of subsistence has been commodified, um, you know, your heating and so on. I mean, and I think it extends honestly to like, I mean, this is why I think it's an interesting question. I'm not really answering the question, but, um, but I think it, you know, extends to like friendships, romantic relationships, like everything is sort of, yeah, everything is bound up in this situation of like where we're all, we all have this precariousness uh, or if we don't, if we have sort of an independent level of wealth, we have this like, Court, like this sort of mirror image guilt you know <laughs> which is mm-hmm. that, or this like sneaking suspicion that we don't deserve it um you know it, it, there's kind of like a can't win quality to it that it, that is that is sort of pervasive uh in the sense that yeah you're either being exploited or you're exploiting and that those are the kinds of relationships that you can have obviously you know there's lots of lots of you know friendships and and uh mutual aid exchanges and and things where there's where capitalism probably doesn't come into it but it's in the room still you know <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. it's sort of lurking looking over your shoulder being like you know you got, and you're sort of there's always a second guessing that's happening about what whether whether the there's sort of a commodity relationship or a, an exploitation relationship or a being whether you're being exploited or exploiting and on a on a personal level, it's just something I think about all the time, um, in terms of how to, you know, yeah, um, make make my my relationship, whether it's to food, housing, other people, my kid, like <laughs> the mm-hmm. the land I live on, like how to decommodify that and and sort of take capital, like make space for capital not to be so ubiquitous in it um but it's Mm -hmm. it's not straightforward because it again if it's not if it's not uh 
at the wheel. It's not if it's not seizing the controls or at the wheel, then it's then it's in the back seat, sort of whispering things. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I interviewed um, Kathy Weeks for the podcast, and mm-hmm. she's got this incredible book, The Problem with Work. And you know, I asked her about sort of, I asked her questions about AI and automation, which you know, there's these books that try to imagine a sort of socialist utopia that will be provided almost by that um, alleviation of work. And she's like, that's a distraction. She basically says, like, don't even, you know, don't think too much about that. Like, the point is to try and, um, I mean, she, it's not so prescriptive, but what I heard her saying is that um, the point is to start thinking more slowly and carefully about exactly what you're talking about, like trying to imagine a space for like meaning making and just uh, being caring for your kids who I heard your kid in the background, incidentally, um, just a minute ago, like that is more deeply relational um, and not necessarily commodified. Like, so she, she, for example, talks about how so often, like when we consider this post-work utopia, it's about like doing the things we love, whether it's art or writing, but with like, but enjoying it more. Right. And even that seems to be kind of, you know, contaminated a little bit by this kind of liberal ethos of self-care and stuff. And she's like, no, no, no. We, the point is like our imaginations right now are kind of stunted, you know, and, and we are so wrapped up in our identities with like, you know, pursuing work or losing the job to someone else or whatever, that it's, it's, it's necessary to kind of start from square one a little bit. Um, And in terms of that, like, I was going to ask you just one more question. And then, you know, I really want to ask you about some of your, um, the articles that you've actually written for the breach um, and your book. Uh, But another question, I guess, on like the, the, the challenges, I guess, of communicating uh, resistance to capitalism, this kind of, you know, uh, oppositional perspective, I think it's super difficult to sustain being anti-capitalist, but, and and that's because it's such a constitutive part of the fabric of our lives. Um, But it's also this fact that it like touches and intersects with, but is somehow distinct from these other forms of like cultural meaning making, like identity, the fact that, you know, race and gender also structure our lives. Um, And this is something that you see uh, uh, in articles that are coming out of the breach. So I guess like, I wonder if you had uh, any thoughts on how as a communicator who is on the left and like advocating for eco-socialism, for example, you know, how you relate that need to go radically in a systemic economic, you know, economically different direction uh, how you relate that to like cultural difference and questions of like identity. Like how do you report on the convoy in ways that like address, for example, like economic anxiety while still like underscoring the fact that this is like in some ways like a white supremacist occupation. Cause the, the whole goal is to, as you say, like um, communicate ideas that will uh, uh, be, be bridgeable for like mainstream Canada, right? Canada is a, a white supremacist like country. There's kind of no getting around it. And yet it wants to be multicultural. It wants to be multiracial and multireligious and, and inclusive and diverse. And, and it wants to embrace those things. At, on some level, though, the, all of that seems to conflict with the basic fact of inequality. So there's this like weird balancing act that the breach kind of seemingly has to do between like understanding that people are coming from a different place, both culturally and economically, like this thing of like, balancing like um yeah like people's deep commitments to a certain kind of like identity and also the fact that they maybe share a fate economically like it just seems like it's so hard to address all of that in an article well i mean yeah i mean this is the balancing act 
it's about creating a, a holistic picture of reality. I mean, obviously, yeah, um, race, race, and and uh, gender, and and all these, you know, sort of identities that are either chosen or or sort of, you know, involuntarily created. Um, those have all pretty much been produced in the con- context of, of of capitalism, or 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 severely impacted. Certainly, a lot of racialization, I think, has happened in the context of as mm-hmm. as a sort of a, a as a tool and as sort of a justification for exploitative relationships. Um, you know, whether it's colonialism, which of course, like started with other people whose skin was like nominally white, but who were very, very clearly, you know, delineated. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, and then whiteness sort of shifts as like, you know, uh, Irish people are sort of, you know, mobilized in the U S context or the Canadian context for this sort of like um, colonial project. Uh, All of a sudden, you know, they become more and more white to the point where, you know, uh, they're indistinguishable uh from from the, just a general whiteness um mm-hmm. and then you know obviously um you know you have you have slavery where where i think you know skin color is basically used as a sort of indelible mark uh to create a permanent underclass um racialization is is inextricably linked to that that the creation of those those uh exploitative relationships and the sort of delineations that that undergird them culturally um Mm -hmm. and and obviously colonialism is it's the same thing like where where does the sort of um anti-indigenous racism come from you know right like it's not it's not a thing that exists outside (laughs) outside of like the the like very capital driven need to like uh you know hyper exploit the land and just steal it. I think it, there's a disingenuous and ultimately inhumane way in which those things get sort of separated. So you can be like, there's a, there's a liberal sense in which you can try to separate, um, you know, indigeneity from the colonial relationship uh, or the, 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 or the capital that, that drives that colonial relationship to this day, uh, or you can try and separate um, you know, racialization from uh, exploitation. But I think fundamentally the character of the specific kind of racism that sort of is still a dominant force in our society is very much a product of capital. Um, and so that's not, you know, that's historic and it, and it has evolved since then. There's, it's constantly changing. There's no, you can't, you can't say, oh, the thing that happened in the 17th century uh, that, that led to this ideology is the exact thing that's happening now. Obviously it's shifted and it's taken on a cultural life of its own and it's, you know, adapted to circumstance in different ways, always, I think, under material pressures. Mm-hmm. It, you know, definitely going out on a bit of a limb here as a white person, you know, a white guy uh, talking about this stuff, but, but I think that's how I understand it. And, and I'm certainly, you know, happy I think it's a dialogue. Like I'm happy to be challenged on that. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to talk about liberation, I think is to, is to try to unpack how that, that history lives in all of us, you know, like, I think as people who are European descended, who are 
living in uh, Canada um, as, you know, settlers like myself, like, I think we have to, what we have to do is sort of unpack our own history in terms of like the enclosure of the land. Like that, there's just a, 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 there's, there's a collective trauma, I think, and, and history that lives on in any kind of person who's descended from like peasants or working class people. Um, and, 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 and the sort of in, inverse trauma of sort of self uh, dehumanization if you come from like you know the gentry or the 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 lords you know who are doing all this or perpetrating all this like i mean it, obviously you can't com- compare that to the trauma of being colonized but uh but it but it is a dehumanizing thing and it does create scars and patterns of thought that have to, that aren't just it doesn't get you off the hook of having to like unpack <laughs> your own yeah what you inherit you know um whether it's through your family or ideologically through your schooling or or whatever um like these are all things that that we have to that we have to to deal with and i think one of the most productive ways we do that is through social movements i mean social movements are the thing that move the needle on that collective consciousness um Mm -hmm. you know both by creating space for people to empower themselves and also by by creating the uh opportunity to um to force the issue or like you know the the impetus to force the issue you know when Mm -hmm. it's something that people don't necessarily find that pleasant to talk about yeah, and I mean, you've talked about this in relationship to the Wet'suwet'en uprising, um, and how it, like, in in the kind of context of this kind of you know lack of faith in electoral politics, this belief, um, you know, that is a dangerous belief that there's been a, a kind of evacuation of power from electoral politics, that it's those sites of resistance that have uh, real symbolic power um, to kind of, as you say, move the needle you know, in the context of, yeah, like trying to maintain some kind of decolonial hope for liberation. Like that is so complicated, especially in the context of escalating climate anxiety. It it certainly requires us to situate ourselves as, as people who may be complicit in that system. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an incredible gift. Um, you know, if, if you think of it that way, that, that, that pe- people who, who just draw the line and say like, mm-hmm. okay, like, we're just gonna we're just gonna call this hypocrisy that Wet'suwet'en you know are talking about traditional law, which is uh, probably the fundamental layer that's the most important. But but even by Canadian law, you know, even <laughs> even by the like recent Supreme Court ruling, you know, uh, mm-hmm. this is not there's no there's you don't there's no right not even legal right you know to 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 go onto this land and yet and yet you know here they are with their bulldozers and their like you know, militarized RCMP, just, just doing the thing, just doing it anyway, just because they just, just out of pure entitlement and, and being able to, and, and having people who are willing to put themselves on the line to call the question on that and just say, look at what this is, you know, we're not backing down. Um, mm-hmm. But look, look at the fundamental values that, that your society is based on. Yeah like don't look away you know like (laughs) uh and and i think that that's such a such an important gift um to to people who live in that society because because you know you could go your whole life without realizing it and i think 
without those without indigenous movements um, taking those stands and and saying um, no this is this is what is happening uh, like we you know there wouldn't be anything like the amount of the kind of consciousness about um, about colonialism and the legacy of that and the and the and the ongoing violence of that and I mean connecting it to a war on nature like connecting it to um, what has been termed by the UN, this, this war on nature, this atlas of human suffering that is coming. Yeah. But there is another war, of course, that we are, we are not allowed to kind of look away from right now. The, the kind of war of images that um, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine represents. Um, you know, the, the economists reported when, when Trump was in power on the so-called Trump bump, that saw a number of different forms of like explanatory journalism, especially left-leaning explanatory journalism, received this like increase in readership due to, I think, a desperate need for context, basically. There seems to be that same sort of clamoring right now for context around the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, which is, you know, further destabilizing a globe that feels more deeply disconnected, disoriented, uh, in peril. Uh, I mean, the just the images of oil refineries blown up the the images of you know genocidal violence in in bucha i mean it's it's hard to know what to think about this and and you've written on the i think a a key kind of question which is the weapons manufacturing boom and you know nato's provocations um your article though i think like notably didn't have a ton on like Putin specifically, it didn't explicitly condemn Russian aggression. Like this is something that it seems like many, like we've become kind of used to hearing people on the left do as a kind of caveat to their critiques of Western powers. Like you have to say Putin's evil and, and he's a madman, and uh, but also NATO's bad. Like there's this like weird appeal to balance. Um, what your article is primarily about is the kind of opportunism of the global military industrial complex. So you quote Raytheon CEO Gregory Hayes saying that tensions in Eastern Eastern Europe are putting pressure on defense spending, and so we're going to see a certain amount of benefit from that. Like just this bald faced um, admission that you know it's a windfall for weapons manufacturers. Um, and I guess like I wondered about your perspective and whether it's been shaped at all by the re- most recent events. This like again this genocidal violence that we've witnessed now in Bucha. You know the the Russian army's viciousness have been, has been met with so much shock, but the solution ha- solutions have largely just been to send more weapons, to fund more weapons manufacturing, and and to maybe work harder, I guess, to divest from Russian energy. Um, what is your sense of what's like possible here? What is imaginable here? And what are you hoping to give publics a better picture of in terms of this this struggle over Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, it's a tough one for the left because usually we're used to having really easy answers. I think mostly because we're usually speaking as certainly the North American left, uh, you know, north of the Rio Grande anyway. Um, you know, we're used to speaking from a position of like opposing our own government. And so it's like, oh, if only our own nominally democratic, you know, <laughs> government that like everyone we're talking to has tremendous power to influence uh you know if only all those people did did something a little differently then you know we could save millions of lives and make a better world 
in this case, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's an interesting situation because it's, you know, in the immediate sense out of our control. Um, yeah. In but in the in a larger sense, it's uh, most definitely, you know, a product of 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 the last you know thirty years of just absolutely wildly bad policy you know um mm-hmm. in inhumane uh economically <laughs> like stilted ill-informed you know policy um and so yeah the, i start with the befall of the berlin wall like you know did did the u.s have to go in or did the international monetary fund have to go in and like gut the russian economy and 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 uh, impose shock therapy on it to like, to the point where like a generation of kid of like, I, I saw a video the other day of like, you know, Russian youths, you know, people in their, you know, early twenties talking about how, like talking about Putin basically and being like, well, it, it's better than what my mom said it was like in the nineties, you know, like that was literally what somebody said. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the like life expectancy dropped like 20 years or something. I don't remember exactly the numbers, but just a drastic decline in every, by any standard of, of living. And so, and so you have, you have now a generation of people who didn't even live through that, who are still like, it could be worse, you know, Mm. and that, that experience is one of the absolute pillars of Vladimir Putin's um, current, ability to rule uh and 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 the inability to replace him because people know that it could get worse especially it could get worse if the u.s gets its hands on russia again <laughs> you know like that is a thing that is topmost in people's consciousness in russia and the sanctions have to be deepening that resentment right oh uh, absolutely and i and i again like, there's no easy answers here i don't you know, there's no way to reverse that. But, but I think the first step is to understand it. You just say like, okay, the fall of the Berlin wall happened. We, we just, we just devastated this, this country, which is now, you know, and the consequences of that are very clear. And then we expanded NATO. You you can debate the sort of NATO expansion. I mean, my parent, my, my mom's from Estonia. I have relatives there. And like, I, I follow the media there a tiny bit and I, and I, I kind of get it, you know, like if I was there, I would want to join NATO too, <laughs> you know, like sovereignty and sovereignty and self-preservation or what's that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but then that turns into an ideology, right. And then, and then you, yeah. and then, and then you end up buying into the empire, which is a, it's a whole other thing, but, but then, you know, but, but then NATO gets used like to do what, to bomb Yugoslavia, to break up, uh, to just like devastate this country and create this like brutal uh, war to initiate the brutal war and then to like deepen it uh, by like bombing all this like factories and civilian infrastructure and all kinds of stuff. Um, And, and then to like destroy Libya and then to, you know, to whatever extent use like, you know, even if it wasn't NATO invading Iraq and Afghanistan, that that military influence um, or that sort of diplomatic influence and, and just general influence that, that the U.S. would get through NATO was at play in, in all those conflicts, and so you you know, and Putin is is somebody who is following very closely what the precedents are, um, you know, in terms of how he's behaved. He's he's in some ways he's followed the U.S. playbook, like when the U.S. dismantled Yugoslavia, 
it was very much it was it, it's 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 kind of uncanny how much Putin has sort of copied that. Okay, you break off this little piece, you stoke, you know, a separatist a separatist movement in that in this little tiny area, and then you have a referendum, and then you and then you break that little piece off, and then you get more influence by divide and conquer tactics. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. what the U.S. did in Yugoslavia or the former Yugoslavia, and that's now what Putin's doing in in Georgia and Ukraine uh, and Moldova. So, so it's the same the same playbook, but 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 all that's to say that that the the U.S. had like a twenty year window where they basically got to decide what the world order was. They basically got to say, okay, this is how we're going to conduct ourselves on an international basis. Mm-hmm. And what a squandered, ridiculous opportunity that they mm-hmm. that they that they just you know pissed away basically by right. saying you know, instead of creating an international order, that's, that's, you know, what they're currently, what Christia Freeland seems to think, think it is, or at least says it is the rules-based international order. I mean, it's anything but, and they've been, they've been just so explicit and brazen about saying the rules don't apply to us. We're just going to do whatever we want and we're going to pursue total dominance. And what that's gotten them is, exactly this situation like if they had spent the last if they had actually spent the those 20 years following the fall of the berlin wall um you know pursuing a actual rules-based international order like it would be very much more difficult for putin to do what he's doing because the whole world uh, (laughs) is watching the u.s like denounce you know uh this war and they're just like what leg do you have to stand on like what yeah like look at Yugoslavia, look at Somalia, look at Yemen, look at um, you know Palestine, look at Iraq, look at Afghanistan. Like I mean, it just the list goes on, you know. And look at all the coups, all the like anti-democratic coups. Look at Haiti, look at you know <laughs> Bolivia, Paraguay, Venezuela. Like I mean, all these all these ridiculous you know ways that sanctions have been used, even against Iran not in service of a rules-based international order, but just in service of like wretched self-interest. So anyway, I mean, I think, I think in terms of going forward, I don't see any way out of the immediate situation. I think it's going to, it's just going to be really messy because, you know, you have like Russia exists, their nuclear power, they have more nuclear weapons than anyone else on the planet. They have a very sophisticated military. Like you can't, you know, you can't, and they and they have a population that, like I said, remembers the '90s and will probably opt for almost anything uh, over like a potential to return to the '90s. And those that oppose it, yeah, primarily the young folks are being thrown in jail if they speak out. Right? There's this, oh, yeah. there's this wanton crackdown on dissent. I mean, that's the thing. I think I think um, that there hasn't been that no coherent opposition has really emerged. And so what, what, what civil society would form the basis for some kind of alternative situation in Russia? Because yeah, I mean, you see Putin, Putin is absolutely, you know, dictatorial in his, in his, uh, the way he wields, wields power. And, but the, the thing that's the, you know, the thing that gives that strength and the, the sort of skeleton of it, um, the spine of it is, is that is that fear of what the U.S. was able, what, what, you know, the kind of just destruction that, that that was visited on the country before? 
And still, I mean, encircling Russia, I mean, 800 military bases worldwide, yeah. right? Like the, the, the scale of it is unbelievable. You invoked, um, the, the, this, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is this, this rising kind of specter of nuclear Holocaust, Yeah. even though it feels like unimaginable to most people, especially in this generation, um, who kind of can't go to that place. It seems like it's it's been in the news more than it ever has been in my lifetime, the possibility of, of this this event. Um, and this is in the context, as you say, of the kind of dissolution of um, a rules based law, you know, uh, uh, global order. Right. Like one of the things you talk about, for example, in your uh, one of your articles is the the International Arms Trade Treaty. Like these are these are things that are that exist and that are apparently legally binding, but are not even being adhered to. So mm-hmm. like in the context of this kind of lawlessness, it becomes more and more imaginable that the escalation of this con- conflict could, you know, really represent a second cold war, which wasn't a cold war at all. I mean, it was a hot war. It was an active war, um, but with more and more powerful nuclear weapons, like Putin is clearly emboldening North Korea, for example, with this show of nuclear force, it's it's clear that the threats by dictators of unprecedented retaliation has more and more people fearing the possibility of nuclear annihilation. And so, like, I don't even really know what to ask, but my question is is simple in a way. Do you see any sense in the notion of, as it's called, mutually assured destruction today being somehow a deterrent? Like, this has always been the language of nuclear warfare, you know, like, it, we can't use nuclear weapons because it will assure mutual destruction. Um, this kind of bizarre logic. Where do you think we're at in terms of like the, imagining that eventuality? Yeah, I mean, as you as you as you, as you said, the, the the Cold War was anything but. But the, you know, the so-called Cold War saw saw so you know there were a lot of different examples that different historians have sort of dredged up of like how close we came. You know, like. Yeah some you know whether it was um you know the 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 soviet submarine captain during the the cold war receiving the the order to fire uh (laughs) you know nuclear weapons and then being like i think i'm just not gonna do that or like the soviet early warning system malfunctioning and and people being like should we launch the map should we launch the nukes in response let's let's just hold off on that a second you know like we came so close, I think, you know, so many different times to, to just annihilating the planet, really, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm laughing nervously, but it's, it's not funny, you know, like it's, it boggles the mind. Yeah. It's sublime. It's hard to think about. Right. So it's like, it just overloads your ability to cognize it. But, but the, yeah. the brazenness, which with or the sort of just like lack of awareness with which people are like, Oh, well, let's, let's, let's just take a little more of a risk. Like we're not going to, yeah, of course we don't want nuclear war, but let's just inch ourselves toward it a little more and just see, just because that seems like it's it's a worthwhile thing. It's like, no, no, that's not worthwhile. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, Let's not toy with that brinksmanship. Let's not go there. Yeah. And this whole idea of a no-fly zone. Uh, I mean, thankfully, it seems to have died down a bit. But but it was it was it was wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would that have looked like? You know, I mean, it would have. Yeah. You write about it. 
it's a shoot it's a shooting war between the US and Russia and 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 yeah. and that can go you know once you once you're shooting at each other directly mm-hmm. the 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 speed with which the speed and like lack of control you have over how quickly things escalate is is just unfathomable so yeah clearly yeah um and and now it seems like there is this moment where there's a level of chaos in Ukraine like it's you know i see maps every day updating the amount of territory that russia controls they've pulled back mysteriously in a way from kiev like it's not quite clear why um this bloody struggle over ukraine is prompting as a result especially of bucha serious conversations about energy and our reliance on well, not our reliance in particular but the world's reliance on uh russian fossil fuels japan has refused to accept the economic consequences of, you know, getting liquefied natural gas from anywhere else. Um, and, you know, Vijay Prashad just said on the Red Nation podcast that it's simply not easy for them to dance around the dollar. That's how he put it, just within the global financial system. Um, you know, like, so the war has exposed the, as the coronavirus pandemic did, the kind of interconnected nature of the food system, the energy system, the addiction that we have to coal and gas and its consequences. But I guess like, do you feel like we're at a point where it's like, and this is a way of kind of segueing into the writing that you've done here in, in, in relationship to the Canadian context um, about just, you know, our reliance on uh, fossil fuels and the, obviously the need to go in a different direction and the inaction at the top. Um, but like, to what, to what extent do you think this shows the ways that attachment to fossil fuels clearly makes nations like vulnerable in ways that weren't clear before the war. Like, do you think that is that the war has shifted the discourse around energy in any fundamental way? I haven't seen it, honestly. Um, yeah, I think, I think that on a level of common sense, I have to imagine that I have to imagine that it must have, mm. you know, people like, I think I certainly see, you know, um, people in my like bubble, you know, um, posting memes about getting off fossil fuels, you know, and so on. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I tweeted the other day, like global green new deal or Putin wins basically. And I think that's basically true. You know, like if you don't, yeah, if we, if we like, like whether it's the Saudis, you know, and they're, and let's be, let's be clear in like significantly more brutal, uh, not that we want to compare brutality, but hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. dead, uh, you know, war in Yemen, mm-hmm. um, or whether it's, um, or whether it's Russia, like the, the kind of, yeah, the brutality of petrostates, um, or, or obviously the U S is a petrostate as well, mm-hmm. the biggest petrostate and, 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 you know, uh, you know, a million, uh, people killed in the middle East, um, as a result of its wars, um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't, I just, yeah, everything, everything should be pointing us, you know, whether it's the climate catastrophe and the warnings from the IPCC, whether it's the like, (laughs) you know, like millions at this point of people dead from fossil fuel wars. um, Mm -hmm. Like we should be, we should be totally clear, you know, uh, that, that this is an immediate and pressing thing uh that we need to do as as a civilization is to get off fossil fuels yeah like, yeah, yeah yeah and 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 spare to spare no expense and yet you know is that mess is that landing in any way like 
I don't know, like as, as, um, as uh, Doug Nesbitt just said on online, you know, the Canada's going to spend, uh, I don't know, however many tens of billions of dollars uh, on fighter jets to defend its $9 billion climate plan, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, 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 you know, NPS, that climate plan is mostly, you know, or is significantly uh, fossil fuel subsidies for, you know, carbon capture nonsense. And I couldn't, um, believe, couldn't believe it when I read that. So clearly it's not, that's not landing um, in any governmental sense. I can only hope that it's landing in a public sense. And I think, mm-hmm. but I think, I think to to even if, even if people are thinking that, like, you know, what the thing that's always required, um, you know, to, is to reify that, to, to, to get people into the streets and to create that actual, um, you know, ideological and, and to some extent sort of, you know, if not physical, then spatial conflict, whether it's by marching in the streets or direct action or, um, you know, mass passive resistance or whatever it is. Um, like it, like that's not very useful as just an opinion. It has to turn into something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't, I think it's pretty clear that there's no electoral option, uh, for that at the moment. Um, not that that wouldn't be f- fraught with problems anyway. So I think, I think it has to be, you know, organizing to get people in, into some kind of action, uh, so that, um, so that it makes, so that we can take it out of the, the realm of the, like the hypothetical mm-hmm. idea that people like or the polling result and into the realm of policy. Yeah. Like the, this kind of leads me into the, the interesting stuff that you've written on both the, you know, NDP liberal coalition and what it might produce if pushed by social movements, but also this, um, this article that you wrote taking apart the symbolic power of Stephen Gilbo, you know, as like emblematic of the liberal party and it's like two faced politics of climate action, right? Like the fact that as they, as they say in, you know, the book, white skin, black fuel, Canada, Canada's liberal party is like an exemplum of this kind of, you know, um, performative commitment to climate action while saying like all the resources are going to be extracted and exploited. Like, and, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we have to link this to what you just referenced, the, the kind of limits of this 2030 emissions reductions plan. It's so clear that the report is not ambitious enough. Um, and you more or less predicted this in your article, Bill Gilbo, saying that he's like a classic business liberal. Um, you write that we should expect the climate file under his leadership to, quote, direct funding to shiny, charismatic projects designed to take the public's mind off the fundamental climate failures of the liberals. So the question for me is like whether a transition is, 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 is conceivable within a capitalist model that dictates, dictates a change has to be kind of incremental. It has to be kind to business. It has to basically ignore the groundswell of eco-socialism to gain any reasonable momentum. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm specifically, I guess, interested to hear, you kind of update your analysis uh, in 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 the in light of this report, right? Like, um, mm. you know, this is this is this is it's the it's just the case that as much money as they're throwing at it, none of the new investments are really attacking the climate crisis at its roots. Yeah. Um, and so, like, we have to we have to politicize that, and it's a question of like what tactics we use, I guess, to politicize it, right? 
Yeah, so, I mean, Gilbo is such an interesting character and I think so indicative in so many ways of, you know, kind of the limitations of the environmental movement, really. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, you know, he's somebody who has made the classic mistake of mistaking his proximity to power with his actual influence or with the best use of his the influence that he does have. Um you know, and, 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 and he's messed that up. Uh, he's got it backwards. Um, and so now he's a, now he's a salesman for, a, for the oil industry, basically. I mean, he's, the transformation is complete. Um, uh, and, you know, and, and that was a transformation that happened probably over, you know, 20, 20 years of sort of corporate collaboration environmentalism. And I think the fundamental, you know, and, and you know, where you, where you, you realize that you're not, getting anything done like shouting from the outside so you go inside and then you you uh you're able to do some like little you know things that seem big or seem important and and then you you get and then you make some compromises and you get more of a reputation and get more attention from the the corporate press and then you know it's there's it sort of snowballs and then and and then this is where you end up right like this is the this is the reductio ad absurdum of that approach um, is embodied by Stephen Gilbeau. And I think it's, I think, I think this is why, you know, class is so important in the transformation of society. It's, it's not because it's special in some magical way. It's because the people who are part of a class live the consequences of whether they're they're winning or losing <laughs> and and basically and can yeah. change course and and change their leadership mm-hmm. accordingly and i think with the environmental movement there's not that direct connection like if you're you know if you're part of a working class struggle that's trying to get more wages like you know whether your wages have gone up or down you know whether you have more public services or fewer public services like you know you 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 know those things because you live them day to day and i think in the environmental movement with a the giant exception of people who are, you know, the victims of environmental racism or, um, or colonialism, um, or who are suffering from, you know, the violence of, of colonial, uh, you know, extraction industries, um, with, with the exception of those people, like environmentalists, you know, like middle, I don't say, let's say your typical middle-class white environmentalist, like Stephen Gilbeau, um, you know, don't, they don't, they don't have that that yardstick uh, in their daily lives, and so it's like, oh, we got uh, a thousand more, you know, um, electric cars on the road or whatever it is, you know, uh, and it's like, yay, uh, but but the the climate is still burning, and so you and so you you constantly want you, you just don't have you, it's so it's it's really easy, I think, to lose track of reality. And so I think that's why indigenous leadership and, and leadership of downstream communities or downwind communities is so important in, this, in, the, in, in, the, in the context of climate struggles. And certainly people in the global south who are going to bear the brunt, people from small island states and so on, like, because they have, they, they, <laughs> they are tie, you know, handcuffed to an objective measure of whether we're actually making progress on the climate or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are, they are, you know, through no choice of their own accountable to that measure because that's their life that they're living, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think that that's, 
that's the, the fundamental challenge. And I think we have to sort of reorient around that because otherwise you end up with this, you know, smoke screen dog and pony show of environmental NGOs that are getting paid by, in some cases, it's been straight up like the fortunes of like oil companies and in some cases, you know, like whether it's Rockefeller or Sun Oil or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and in some cases, it's because they're, you know, it's green capitalists, like people are investing in like nice giant corporate solar farms or whatever. But either way, like that's a that's that's a dead end in terms of meeting the actual objective needs of stopping climate change to an extent that, you know, actually doesn't result in mass suffering, mass death and ecological collapse. Mm-hmm. Like that's the measuring stick. It's not how many you know how many lead lead certified condos got built or whatever you know like that's not the measure if it was then steven shilbo would be a, a bona fide hero but you know it's not and he's not yeah yeah no I, and that's the thing like we it gets sort of distilled down um it, for i think tactical communicational reasons into just the, yeah like as you i think you rightly describe it like these shiny charismatic projects you know, the, the numbers are supposed to be reassuring, but just reducing output from 191 megatons of carbon to 110 megatons is not going to keep us from 1.5 degrees or two degrees of warming. It's just a fact. Um, and yeah, it's yeah, it, it might not it, even keep us from like four degrees. Yeah, it's like <laughs> so, it's, yeah. it's worse than a smokescreen. It's like it's it's a furnace that we're being like thrown into in, in, the, in this virtual reality moment of like. Car- carbon neutral and carbon capture storage these technologies that don't you know just don't exist yeah um but you mentioned uh, ngos and i feel like i should ask you you know a question about this this you know a, and a, a way of kind of pitching or not pitching uh promoting the book paved with good intentions this co-authored book that you put together um a few years ago and you know especially the book's interrogation of the slippery nature of non-governmental organizations which is its central kind of focus um, you know, both in terms of the definition of what counts as an NGO and what they do. Like I do, I do agree. It's like poorly understood and, and that that lack of understanding is consequential. Um, you write in the book that quote, the term non-governmental organization is notoriously vague given that it defines organizations by what they are not. And that the, the diversity of development NGOs forms a crucial part of their appeal since it allows observers from across the political spectrum to project their values, hopes, and desires onto these organizations. Um, I think like the book is useful because you're spelling out also how NGOs operate specifically in Canada. You know, you say like there's hundreds of development NGOs in Canada. They come in all these different shapes and sizes. But despite that diversity, as you say in the book, there are characteristics that are common to virtually all of them. So they're professionalized, they're bureaucratic in their structure, and they depend on government funding to maintain that structure. Um, how do NGOs fit, if you can say it succinctly, it's, it's a tough thing. You've, you've written an entire book about it, in the overall neoliberal picture. Like you talk about how the operations of NGO, NGOs reveal Canada has economic and geopolitical interests. It seeks to promote in the global south, often at the expense of low, local populations. Um, where do we see this play out today? When, where did you sort of see it playing out most prominently, like in the book? Um, did you want to kind of speak to what you uh, were arguing there? 
Yeah, I mean, um, so, you know, so, so to kind of continue the thread of the definition, um, you know, non-governmental organizations aren't basically like they're not, they are governmental organizations. This is the, you know, certainly in the case, in the, in the case of, of development NGOs specifically. And it was interesting. I mean, in the, in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, you saw the, the absolute proliferation of these NGOs. Um, and, and I think everyone was a little hazy about where the money was coming from and how much it was, how much influence it had and how that influence happens. So, you know, in my, and, 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 and really, so where this comes from, for me, where, you know, I've done a lot of work on environmental NGOs and also uh, co-authored this book with Nick about, um, with Nick Barry Shaw about um, development NGOs. Um, and, and both of those threads come from sort of direct experience as an activist, you know, being like, okay, well, we, you know, we have, um, we have a big issue like, you know, global poverty, or we have a big issue like, you know, the climate and the tar sands and just, you know, being the world's largest industrial project that's like, you know, destroying the climate. Um, like, how do we deal with that? And then all of a sudden, and then, and then, and then looking around to see who your allies are like, oh, you know, um, you know, Canada just in 2004 was the, was sort of the original one is like in 2004, Canada sponsored and care, helped carry out a, a coup d'etat against the democratically elected government in Haiti. Um, and, uh, and the result was, you know, like, I guess we're going on 16, 17 years of, of, um, of just like brutal anti-democratic dictatorship that, that has, that, that, that has been violent, uh, to an extreme against social movements, um, that, you know, would be the engine for improving things in that country. Um, and, um, and so, you know, obviously we didn't know, we didn't know that that would be the outcome. So, you know, 16 years ago or whatever in 2004, but we were looking around for allies. We're looking, Oh, who's, who else is working on this? Who else might be interested? And quickly we came across these development NGOs, um, you know, some of them with like strong histories and social movements who were, like actively throwing a wrench into anti <laughs> anti coup d'etat organizing, act- actively sort of throwing up a smokescreen on behalf of the Canadian government, not without without explicitly supporting it, but but definitely playing a role of like of like uh, smearing the smearing the sort of democratic opposition and um, and muddying the waters in terms of like saying that you know Aristide was a dictator or whatever and that. And that the and 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 most crucially that 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 objectively the the government the this is Haiti's chance to turn over a new leaf. It turned out to be anything but a chance to turn over a new leaf. I mean, I think history has really borne us out on that one. Um, but you know, but at the time it was it was alarming to see all these sort of you know nominally progressive in some cases left wing groups um, on the on the on what we thought was the wrong side of history, and I think what objectively has turned out to be the wrong side of history. Um, and um and we were like what is going on here (laughs) you know like why are these people acting so badly um and you know and it turned into a kind of follow the money thing where it's like oh uh you know they've been getting money from the canadian government to run programs in haiti and all over latin america for you know and really the world since 
for for the last 10 years and, and careers have been built up and and uh you know jobs are at stake and fun you know millions of dollars in funding is at stake and you know you don't have to go much further than that to understand how how people how somebody drifted um and it's the same story that us you know this it's this it's the steven gilbeau story to a certain extent you know it's like oh you start out with this idea and then you know you're an idealistic actor you're wanting to make things better and then you realize that you can do more if you had more resources and then you're offered resources and there's no sort of compromise to be made initially like you know foundations and governments don't don't come in saying you have to you have to sell your soul to the devil they say here we love what you're doing take these thousands or millions or whatever dollars uh and do more of it great wonderful love it keep going you know and and people are like oh good cool like uh We'll, we'll do that. And without, and if you don't have a really clear analysis of how that's, how that is not going to be a constant, <laughs> you know, that's not going to be how those, how that funding works permanently. It's, it, that's just how it starts. Um, if you don't have that sense, then you don't have a plan to like create an independent source of funding for when that funding starts to drift in a different direction. And, and you're very susceptible because at that point you, you know, you're probably paying your rent and maybe you got a nicer apartment. Maybe you have a family now. Maybe you have a nice middle-class lifestyle. Maybe you have family pressures. Maybe you're taking care of whatever, you know, you're doing whatever you're doing with your, with your salary. But all of a sudden that salary is at stake when, you know, three, four, five, maybe even 10 years down the road, the government's like, well, our priorities have shifted a little bit when the foundations, you know, to the environmental NGOs say the same thing. Like our priorities have shifted a little bit over here, you know, you fill out this funding application for this other priority. I'm sure you'll get funding, but you just have to sort of adapt a little bit to, you know, what we're funding now. And, you know, you're, it's a boiled frog scenario where like all of a sudden you are, you know, doing the bidding uh and in the case of inv- in, of development and, and it's usually just a matter of a mission it's not it's not like they're asking you to do anything bad it's just that they're asking you to do only specific kinds of good things right like so development ngos can build all kinds of, they, they probably do actually good things probably not as efficiently as public the public sector would in those in in those countries but they're like they're digging wells they're building schools they're they're doing all these like feel good things um and maybe there's a critique of whether that's the most effective, but we do what we can within the system, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but the, but the real, the real juice is that they don't get to, you know, like in, uh, you know, we give the example of Ghana where the IMF came in and did structural adjustment and said, Oh, you guys have to cut like your education funding and your health funding and all your public sector basically. Um, and because there was all, and, and because they, Part of that program was that they flooded the country with environment with with NGO funding, um, with with development NGO funding. Um, there was no coordinated resistance to those public sector cuts because all because you can basically say like all the all the best leaders, um, all the sort of people with social capital, can have the choice. They can either, uh, you know, make no money and fight 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 this inexorable neoliberal beast that's chewing up their system or they can accept the money and 
and maybe do some good, maybe build a school, maybe, you know, dig a well. And all they have to do is ignore the fact or not speak up about the fact that, you know, (laughs) for every school that got built, you know, three, you know, probably got closed and just because of this, yeah, this imposition because of this, because of the structural adjustment that's happening. And for every, you know, for every little community health clinic that you set up or like vaccination program that you, that you get to run uh, through this development funding, you, um, you probably have a hospital close, you know? Um, And that's the, that's the trade-off. And it's, when you look at it from that perspective, it's just so sickeningly amoral and, and cynical, Uh, (laughs) you know, Um, you, there's something really fraught about it for sure. And, and like you do the book does, so the book's called paved with good intentions. And it's like, it, it certainly, you know, it, it, it talks about NGOs as this like vague uh, uh, misunderstood thing, but it also talks about how development itself is not, um, thought examined enough, right? Like it's mm-hmm. this itself, like ambiguous and indeterminate thing. Uh, when does development end? When have you, when have you, have you achieved something? And, and to what extent is development sort of wielded as a concept that, um, facilitates like a, a, a the structural readjustment that can sometimes like, for example, when you talk about the context of Palestine lead to, uh, as you put it, the negative depoliticizing mm-hmm. of, of mass movements, like, you, you talk about how NGOs can serve to contain popular movements um, and that NGO programs were in Palestine realigned away from the struggle against the occupation to an apolitical agenda of service provision and state building. Like that kind of subtle perspective is often missing um, in, in just the kind of rah-rah rhetoric of, of NGOs um, and their humanitarian sort of salvation of developing nations, yeah. um, you know? And so, yeah, I think... Um, you know, so you're documenting the forms of like in Palestine, socialist organizing that were demobilized by that move and the transformation of acti- activism into kind of technocracy, uh, which is so, so brilliant. Um, you know, I don't, I don't it's wanna... diabolical for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I would just, I would just add that, you know, in, in the environmental movement in Canada, this is like the fundamental issue, you know, like you have, mm-hmm. I mean, as I was, as I was saying before about, you know, people who, who are sort of have that direct link but there you know there's so much sentiment that could be mobilized you know in solidarity uh and and directly uh for for the climate but so much of that gets gets sort of channeled into these sort of dead ends um because that's what gets funding you know like um Mm -hmm. i mean i don't know it's just been interesting being in the world of sort of you know it's sort of adjacent to foundation funding and sort of watching what, what gets funded. There, there's, you know, there's a, there's a real strong correlation of like funding for things that are like, you know, not that effective at, at, um, or like explicitly not effective at, at confronting power, but that take up a lot of time and resources and, and, and bring in, bring a lot of people along. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, the, I mean, when you saw earth, Day kind of come out, just the tremendous grassroots energy of it, um, you know, in the from the seventies onward, really was just, I mean, it was, it's just such a massive, it's kind of a, I mean, it's just an incredible upheaval of consciousness that was, that happened in terms of people becoming aware that they live on a finite planet with 
delicate ecological systems to sustain them. You know, like it's mm-hmm. just this incredible moment uh, and it continues for decades. And, um, and really what you've seen is, is that there's just so much power in that, but, but, but there's been a very systematic and cynical, uh, you know, work that's been done to, to derail that, to derail the power of that in terms of confronting the actual damage that's being caused, like, you know, and you see just waves of it. It's like, you know, in the, in the nineties and early two thousands, it was just like every, it was all personal consumption choices. Like, Oh, if you just do this, you'll, you'll have a lower carbon footprint or this or that. And like, everybody was like excited about that. Um, and, and, and sort of derailed into that. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and, and there were, there were democratic, you know, organizations that were, you know, imperfect in all kinds of ways, but, but, um, but that actually had that sort of like accountability to a, to a membership. Um, and those, you know, like I, I had had an article where I talked about the Sierra club in BC and I interviewed a few people who were involved in the nineties when, when environment was like the number one issue politically in BC, um, and the NDP got in power and all of a sudden all, you know, and, you know, and, and I think certainly lot, lots of different people in industry <laughs> on the one side and environmentalists on the other saw that as like a potential transformative moment in terms of, you know, relationship to the environment. Um, and and that's when the foundation money just started flooding in, you know, to BC specifically uh, and specifically to the BC Sierra Club. And, and one of the one of the people who was a member back then told me he was just like, yeah, like like they only had like one or two full-time paid staff. Uh, and anytime they wanted to take on a campaign, what they would have to do is like, is very, is painstaking. Like you'd have to like hold public assemblies across the province and get people into rooms and discuss things and get them involved and get them volunteering. But, but the result was just this incredibly powerful organic political force because you relied, you had that, you had that direct accountability link with your, with your members and the sort of struggle, how they saw the struggle. And then when the foundation funding came in with Pew charitable trusts in the, in the late nineties, and they started saying, well, you know, like I was saying before, like, you know, please do more of, of this. We love what you're doing. And then of course, you know, next thing you know, you have like 10 staff or 20 staff in an office and, you know, you everybody's mm-hmm. got nice salaries and, 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 you become less and less. In fact, the membership becomes a liability because what what who you're really accountable to is is the funders, um, because that's how you get your next your next tranche of funding. Um, and 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 the members, if they have if they have priorities that that deviate from what the funders want, you know, and like obviously this happens over a decade. Um, this does, it's not an immediate thing, but but that drift happens where it's like, oh, now we're a funder driven organization, not a membership driven organization. And the, mm-hmm. and the membership sort of just dwindles away. And, and I think that's a great tragedy that, that, that nobody sort of um, noticed that, you know, and not, or, or, or thought it was enough of a problem. I think, I think there's, there's a kind of like, everybody's doing their thing. We need everybody, we need all hands on deck. I think that's the sort of, that's the sort of um, attitude that people have toward it. It's like, um, oh, well, there's the, the more moderate, you know, foundation funded groups and then there's the grassroots groups and we need everybody and we we shouldn't fight amongst each other. 
Um, but the fundamental contradiction is that is that those well-funded organizations have been holding back and badly defining the the terms of of environmental struggle and climate struggle for for decades now. And um, you know mm-hmm. the, the the terrain is a little different. I think I think um, I think there's a little more awareness of of that. A little bit more and and a little more emphasis on 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 grassroots mobilization but not enough <laughs> uh, i think we're we still have that we're still dealing with that hangover you know totally and i mean like i feel like i already know i often like the last thing i do is title these episodes when mm-hmm. i post them yeah. um i think i already know what the title is going oh, to yeah. be because it seems like you're breaking down the kind of manifest necessity and moral hazards of compromise in like so much of your work, like compromise keeps coming up in so many of the the answers that you've been giving. Huh. Um, and, and so like, maybe we could end on the question of this NDP liberal compromise uh, that was just forged. You wrote this measured, but I think mostly hopeful article recently, historicizing some of the gains that have been made in the past when this kind of collaboration takes place. Um, there have been moments you document them where it's been possible to push a progressive agenda in Canada when these coalitions form. The way you put it is that, quote, uh, a look at past minority governments can clarify how we understand what is happening right now in Canadian politics and what might be winnable under a future minority government. So, you know, the compromise could be good in some ways. And like people should read your article. It's titled Movements Can Seize the Opportunities of a Second Minority Government. Here's how. Um, to get those examples, but I guess like just what what do you see as the key policy initiatives? Environment, of course, and and fighting climate change has to be one of them. But you know there are others that you name that could get more traction through this partnership. Um, and I guess like do you actually have hope that this could represent a kind of left turn for the country, or is it just another case of the NDP conceding its power to the Liberals? Yeah, I mean, I think so. The question of compromise is an interesting one. I've, I, I, I don't, I don't feel like I've ever had any problem with compromise. Um, what I do have a problem with is, 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 is sort of, is sort of retroactively telling a story that's false about the compromise. You know, mm-hmm. um, like, like if you're like if you if you don't have enough power uh, to get, you know, the thing that you want, and you and you get some key reform instead um that that's that's a compromise and that's fine that you know that that it is what it is and we don't live in the world where we get to have everything we want but the problem happens when you say oh well the compromise was the thing we were looking for all along and we're actually geniuses because we got the compromise i think that's that's when you start to (laughs) that's when you when you start to believe when you start to drink your own kool-aid uh, that's when you really start to um, go off the rails, and 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 it's really hard to hold the two things at, at the same time because it, there's a there's a real emotional sort of impetus to to align what you can do with what you want, and I think that that's the sort of ideological challenge really, and 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 to and to find a way to orient yourself properly in that. And so I think with the with the current NDP. I, I guess my my sort of cynical take is that what they've gotten out of it, what the what the, the NDP leader and and the and the sort of people running the show in the NDP have gotten out of it is that they get to keep their jobs for another two years and sort of be be whatever they are. Um, and you know, 
what the liberals get out of it is basically the same thing. They just get, I mean, the liberals just get free reign to do what, what they want. I, I guess, I guess the problem with for me is that, that I think it's, it's not the moment to ask for some, like a means tested dental program, just basically the, the new thing that they're getting everything. A lot of the other things were sort of either tweaks or, or sort of things that were in the, the liberal platform even. Um, and so, yeah, you're holding the liberals to their word. And so who, who benefits from that? I mean, it's the liberals clearly. Um, and, and, and I think by, by not being able to clearly call out the liberals and, and, and be, yeah, be clear about who they are and what they do, which, which I think the NDP has severely compromised its ability to do now, but had already done so because I think that they've, they've tried to build a sort of a urban small business support base, which is fundamentally might make sense for their short-term fundraising goals, but really doesn't make sense in terms of like, you know, what we fundamentally need as a, as a, I don't know, as a country, as a species, like as a civilization, like it just doesn't match up. I'm sorry. Like, um, Mm -hmm. and you have to, like, I think somebody who exists in this time when, when we're facing these like massive scale crises of like militarism, imperialism, emergent infections. Yeah. Pandemic, uh, you know, inequality, um, and and the climate crisis first and foremost like mm-hmm. you know if you're not if you're not able to articulate some kind of vision that actually meets that moment like i mean what are you doing really <laughs> like why why are you in a leadership position i think if you're not even willing to articulate that even if you say even if you said okay you know a global green new deal is not within reach right now so we're going to focus on this smaller goal but we're going to keep that bigger goal in view then that would be one thing um you know but canada's a g7 you know g8 power um mm-hmm. you know a glo- like a you know one of the big players in the imf like we're 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 a you know one of the highest highest military spenders certainly um uh you know we're we're, we're a global force um and like um there's just mm-hmm. nothing uh from the ndp except for you know except that they'll, they'll they'll be like you know sort of trailing public opinion by like 20 feet you know like some majority of canadians think that like uh 70 year occupation of the of the west bank uh is unjust <laughs> you know and the ndp is kicking and screaming god got got dragged into taking that position um mm-hmm. you know and, and and it's a it's a it's a popular one um uh you know and it's the same thing with like i don't know um yeah just just the ability to to to, to actually to actually use that incredible platform which has been built by you know the, the several decades of working class struggle like totally uh, you know, and and now you're using it what for like, you know, minor tweaks to healthcare and self-aggrandizement. Like, it's it's just it's 
you know it's depressing and it's inadequate and it and it and i think you know whoever 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 decides that that's the thing that should be done in that context i think you know should just step aside yeah and i think um in order for something more radical um to fill that void um so yeah and and this is why i so value the breach and and look forward to seeing you know what it can kind of become and and you know, it's just, it's great to talk to somebody who really cares about these challenges, you know, the tactical reasons, for, you know, you're thinking about the tactical reasons, as it were, for like compromising, um, but also this, this like fundamental need to, it seems to me, like fight a system of cruelty that hoards abundance for the few um, to the detriment of the many, you know, so it's, it's, it's awesome to talk to you and I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate it. It's been a super interesting conversation.